So when I was in seminary, I was taking this class where you do a lot of tests about yourself and like your giftings, what you're not good at, um, what kind of ministries might be good for you. And uh, my professor, it was not Jimmy Egan, my professor said, David, if you try to go plant a church, I will lay down in front of your car and not let you. I said, Dr. Douglas, you do not need to worry. I do not want to do that. And so I feel like I kind of always have this little soft spot in my heart for church planners. You know, like I can never do that. But Paul was an incredible church planner. And the first plant that he started was the church in Philippi, the Philippians. And so as we're going through this letter, think about it as an entire letter that's all together. And um, you see in chapter 1 how he's writing to them, he greets them, he tells them about how he's in jail. He tells them, um, look, I want you to be humble as you are suffering. So he kind of knows what they're going through. Gets into chapter 2 and he calls them to have humility as they serve. And then he talks about Jesus' humble service. So chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, some people call it the Messiah poem. Because it's about Jesus' humble service where he emptied himself, where he gave up all the riches of heaven and came to the world as a human. And he obeyed God and he served people even to the point of a humiliating death. And yet God in his grace did not leave him there. He was resurrected. God reversed it. And now Jesus is exalted by God's grace and mercy. And so this, in this letter, Paul is convinced and he's... Um, confident and convinced that Jesus is that Messiah. He's the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for. But he also says, this is who I want you to follow and be like, is Jesus. And so here in chapter two, our passage, it's going to give you two concrete examples. Okay. So it's Timothy is the first paragraph, and a guy named Epaphroditus is the second paragraph. Two concrete examples of what it means to to serve and what it means to serve in a way that brings you peace. So, you know, this this whole letter is uh, tied into the story of Jesus and the story of his service and his love for us so that we might experience peace and show it to other people. So as Elisa reads it to you on the video, um, just listen for the idea of humble service and maybe why we would do that. Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians 2 verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. 
but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as Jason said earlier, he didn't feel like he should be the one leading. Lord, I don't feel like I'm the one who should be leading about this either. I need to be challenged in this way and to be empowered to do this. And Lord, we all need that. We all need to be challenged in this way and empowered to trust in you, to hope in you, to have peace in our lives in the midst of all the crazy. And even as we do that, we can serve other people. We can put their interests in front of ours. And so, Lord, as we hear the preaching of your word, would you please, by your Holy Spirit, come and bless us and do these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I am not sure where I got this illustration. So if you know where it comes from, please come tell me. It involves Seinfeld, okay? Seinfeld was doing this interview, and it was kind of, it was after his show, and his popularity was huge, and he made all the money and everything, and the person asked him, why didn't you have your, like, primary residence in L.A.? Why did you keep it in New York? I mean, you were filming out there. Why didn't you just stay, stay out there? Why didn't you live in L.A.? And he said... Because in L.A., the score is always one L.A. to zero U. L.A. one, U zero. And I was, that piqued my interest. Like, what is he talking about? And he went on to say, you're never going to win. You always have to do more. Yeah, you have a successful show, but now you got to do another one. Plus, you're always competing against the other people who are trying to do shows. And it's exhausting. And I was like, you know, like, oh my gosh, what a great example. So if you know where that came from, email me. But I, I heard that and just thought, yeah, like that is so exhausting to be competing with everybody and trying to one-up everybody. And that's just not peace, right? It's not peace. And I think that happens because we live in a culture of me. And it's about me. It's about what I do, right? What's the phrase that we say, you do you? Well, that's actually not a good biblical idea. Like, you do you is like, no, you're supposed to serve other people. So you doing you is not necessarily 
biblical. So, um, but we live in that culture of like one-upping each other. I don't know if you have this, but like when men gather around, you know, in a circle and we're hanging out and we tell stories, it's like you tell your story and then someone else tells a story. It's a little bit better. And then the next one tells the story has to be better, has to be better. And then it's like, well, no one can top that. So what do y'all want to talk about now? You know, like that's what we do. We're constantly one-upping each other and competing and it's tiring. It's exhausting. Like, what would it look like to have peace? What would it look like to be surrounded by people who weren't one-upping each other, who weren't competing against each other? You know, I have to have the best reputation, or I have to have the most right theology. You know, I have to have all this stuff. Like, no. Like, what if we just were able to chill and not one-up each other? Because it leads to selfish ambition. It leads to competition and, you know, only care about my interests, and there's no peace. No peace. Well, what should we do? Well, let's look to this letter, the Philippians, that Paul wrote. He's writing from a Roman prison, and he's awaiting his verdict. So he's a little anxious, you know. I don't know if I'm going to die or not. I'm writing you from this cell. And he's writing, and he wants, them to, he wants to know how they're doing, right? Because he's the one who planted that church. So, like, he loves them. He cares about them. So he's writing them this letter. And then he tells them, I want to send you my protege, Timothy. And I want to also send this other guy who you know because he's from the church of Philippi, Epaphroditus. I want to send him back to you. And I want to do that to encourage you and like, so that you can have joy because he's, he's heard that there's big conflict in the Philippian church, that people are doing this one-up thing because they think Paul got the gospel wrong. And so now they're all kind of fighting and competing and there's a lack of unity amongst leaders, amongst people, because they're all trying to take Paul's spot. And you see in verse 20 what he says. He says he's going to send Timothy. Why? For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Right? I'm sending, I want to send Timothy to you for your welfare. He didn't say, I want to send Timothy to visit you, but I want him back, really. Like, I'm sending him for your welfare. And then what does he say about Epaphroditus? You see it in verse 28. I'm more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. Right? It's for their joy. He's about them. He wants their welfare to be good, and he wants them to rejoice. Like, that's what his focus is on. And Timothy and uh, Epaphroditus are both examples of people who are living out Jesus' story. People who are living out what it means to humbly serve God and others. So these two concrete examples, Timothy, you know, he's this example of service-centered care, and he's genuinely concerned for their welfare. And then you have Epaphroditus, who he's from the church, and he had actually risked his life, because what does every church planner need? Money. So he risked his life to get to Paul so he could give him some money. 
And then Paul wants to write back to say, hey, he got sick, but um, he didn't run off with your money, so don't worry. Okay? So he, he's writing this letter using him that he did indeed bring the money, and he was ill, and he was, now he's saying he was close to death, but by God's mercy, he was spared. Like, these are the kinds of people who are living, breathing examples of living out Jesus' story, of being like Jesus. And they are worth imitating. So you might say, well, how does that apply to us? Well, I, I guess I can ask the questions, you know, are we selfish? Are we after our own interests? Or do we just serve ourselves? But I want to press in a little bit more and first ask this. What are you modeling to your kids and or your coworkers about serving others? What are you modeling to your kids and or coworkers about serving other people? Now I pick those two categories for a reason. First, I pick kids because in verse 22, how does he describe Timothy? But you says, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. So he's using this father-son relationship language, right? And Timothy, who would be the son, the kid, knows about Paul, and they would have known each other, and Paul knew he was genuinely caring and serving to the Philippian people. And also you think about him as a co-worker. Verse 20, again, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Like, he works with him. They've worked together. They've helped plant this church. He knows him, and he knows him. Like, they both know each other really well and know what kind of people they are. And Timothy has been taught and shaped by Paul from working with him in this family relationship. All right, so... You might say, okay, well, what else? Well, can you name a time where you genuinely cared more about the welfare of another person, not in your family? Can you think of a time where you cared so much about another person's welfare? Can you think of a time? See, in this letter, Paul wants unity. He wants joy. And he talks about Timothy in verse 20 and 21. I just read verse 20, but it says he genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Right? Like he knows that Timothy genuinely cares. And then look also at verse 26 of Epaphroditus. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And Paul's, or Epaphroditus is like, I'm stressed out because you're stressed out about me. It's like all these people are stressed out about each other. And Paul's like, all right, it's all good. Everybody can calm down. Everybody can chill. When was the last time that you rejoiced over another person's accomplishment? When was the last time you rejoiced over another person, person's accomplishment? 
You see in verse 28 how Paul is eager to send. He says, I am more eager to send Epaphroditus, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. I want you to be happy. I want you to rejoice over seeing him again. Like, do we do that? Do we, do we do that? Do we rejoice when someone else gets something that we might want? Right? Like, so, and here's kind of a way that we do this. We perceive by looking at people, we perceive that their life is easy. Man, they got that parenting thing down, and I am jealous that their kids are not difficult. Or, oh, do you look at their house? I wish I had that kind of money. Kind of secretly resent them. Just a little bit, you know. Or gosh, they got it so easy. I mean, look at look at the friends that they have and they're healthy. And you just kind of res- resent them in a little just a little bit because you want what they have. Could you rejoice over someone else's getting something that you wanted? And then here, we, I only have a couple more questions. Don't worry. Um, can, oh, I was going to say, too. When we, I said perceive that their life looks easy. Perceive. You don't know that that's easy. You don't know that they're great parents. You don't know that their children are awesome. You don't know how much money they really have. You don't. Perception. People can be fake. So let's zoom out here for a second. Well, before I get to that, let's say, can you see where you might be selfish? Can you see where you might have some selfish ambition? Or can you see where it's like, you know, out of my insecurity, I always try to one-up that person. Kind of, I get insecure, I get nervous, I want to be important. I I, I one-up them. And the guys hang out, you know. Do you want up them? Can you, could you tell somebody that you admired them about something? Right? That's what Paul says to do here, verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Could you say to someone else, I admire that about you? Right? Like, I admire Jason's being vulnerable and transparent. And let me say, I have seen this in a place, and it kind of blew my mind when I first got here. And you might be surprised, but I saw it at session meetings. I saw it at session meetings where your elders were saying to each other, and someone said something to me, I admire this about you. And I turned to one of them and said, when do y'all start fighting? They weren't. And I can tell you, when those men said something to me, like, I admire this about you, that was a huge blessing, and it brought me to tears. It was wonderful. So when Paul says, honor them, honor men like them, honor these men and women who live like Jesus. And I'm going to zoom out just for a second and think about the question. What is it that you think will bring you peace? What is it that you think will bring you peace? 
okay? Right? Like, if I can just control my life in this certain way and get this thing, then I'll be happy, right? If I can control my life and get everything the way I want it, if I get enough power, if I get enough money, if I get the right job, if I get married, if I'm in the in crowd, if I, you know, am an officer at the church, if I'm, you know, wanting to be the guy who's always right or the person who has tons of friends, person who is, has that easy life, get my reputation right, I'll have peace. And what I want to say is, when we do that, it leaves us empty. It leaves us discouraged and disappointed. Because it is the opposite of peace. The opposite of peace. So, think about this question. It doesn't have a lot to do with what I've said so far, but you can talk about it over lunch with somebody. Who do you identify with most in the story? Who do you identify with most in the story? Is it Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, Philippian church, someone on the side? And then what changes are you being called to make after hearing this passage? What changes are you being called to make? You might say, why would I do that? That sounds way too hard. It sounds like a lot of effort, David. Why would I do that? How could I do that? Well, there's good news. You can have this sense of security, this calmness, this peace that Paul is talking about. Because look at him. How does Paul have any peace? I mean, he's in jail, right? He doesn't know how he's going to get sentenced. He doesn't know if Timothy is actually going to make it to Philippi. He wants to send him, but he doesn't know exactly when or if he'll make it. He wants to send Epaphroditus right now, but he doesn't know if he's going to make it. He has all this, like, all these question marks, and yet he has peace. What, how does he do that? Well, look at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus. Verse 24. I trust in the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus, I trust in the Lord. What does that mean? One writer says, it's complete and humble subjection to him who alone is Lord with all sovereignty. And what, what he's trying to say is like, that's submission, submitting your life to your Savior who rules over all. Submitting your life to him. Because through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he has secured peace for you and me. He has secured peace by redeeming us from sin and death and evil. Redeeming means he bought us back. He bought us back by his life and death and resurrection. And because of that, because of the Spirit of God in us, we can hope in Jesus we can trust in Jesus and have peace and rest and assurance and let him be God and us be us, okay? Let him be God and us be us. And like, you be free from the rat race. You be free from competing against each other about everything. You be free from having to one-up that guy at work that you wanna one-up all the time. <laughs> Right? 
Paul is saying, I want you to have peace and you find rest and trust and hope. And here's the way that I would kind of describe peace. I'm okay with me being me and you being you and we're different. Or we have a different opinion. Like we can still be friends. I'm secure enough in the gospel and you're secure enough in the gospel that we can just be ourselves and hang out and be different and have different views. Like even the millennials can hang out with the boomers. Like, right? Like I, I do care who you voted for, but I mean, I'm not going to like not be your friend because of it. But the security of me being okay with me and you being you. I was just free for you. But Paul's saying with these two men, he's saying, look, the way that you are going to have peace, the way that you are going to have um, this freedom is, is through trusting and hoping in Jesus. And with these two men, Paul's showing, this is the only way you're going to get that peace is through Jesus. And it's not a kind of a peace that's like, everything is awesome. It's not going to be hard. It's all puppy dogs and ice cream. Like, no. What does verse 28 say about Paul? At the very end of verse 28, that I may be less anxious. When I read that, I go, oh, man, I'm not the only one. Paul struggled with anxiety, right? He's doing it so that he will be less anxious. And I'll say, I kind of want to make a side note. Verse 27, talking about Paul and what he felt, he's talking about how God had mercy on Epaphroditus, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And what I want to say here is that it is okay for you to have sorrow. It is okay for you to grieve over something. We live in a human world that is full of brokenness and sin, and you will have seasons in your life where you need to grieve over things. I mean, Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus. Lazarus. Isaiah, in 15 chapters, he talks about the Savior being the man of sorrows. Right? I mean, like, I want you to give yourself the freedom to feel things and to grieve them. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But you have the Holy Spirit working in you, bringing you peace and helping you work through it. And you will have those seasons in your lives. And I wanted to say that because I want us to show kindness to ourselves, right? Because we're usually like, you gotta suck it up. I'm like, quit crying, quit being so sad. Or count it all joy, you know, and like we like apply these Bible verses that are not helpful at the moment. All right, I'm off that soapbox. Verse 27 again, look at verse 27. Indeed, Epaphroditus was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only him, but on me also. 
God had mercy on Epaphroditus by showing him compassion and kindness and not letting him die, right? He has mercy on Epaphroditus. And then Paul saying, I got that mercy too. And Timothy was shown that mercy. And the Philippian church has shown that mercy. And whoever you identify with in the story, they're being shown mercy. Why? Because we've got to go back to the Messiah poem earlier in the chapter. It's all tied together, remember? By God's mercy, Jesus came into the world as a man. He experienced brokenness and evil. He became a servant. He obeyed God even to the point of dying a humiliating death for you and for me. And then in God's mercy, what does he do? He resurrects him and then exalts him. By his mercy, he's exalted. By God's mercy, he is making you, he is making me like Paul and Timothy, service-centered lives. By his spirit, he is growing us in how we mirror Christ in our lives. He is growing us and helping us to look out for others' interests before our own. That is what the Holy Spirit is working in you by God's mercy. By God's mercy, he's building his people, he's building the church to look like Epaphroditus who cared for the welfare of others and truly sacrificed himself for other people. Right? Like, that's good news. God is at work all the time doing this. Jesus and the Holy Spirit have done this and are doing these things in our lives. And this, this example of God's mercy is just one story in Philippians. And we've said Philippians is a story grounded in Jesus' story. Well, what did Jesus' story have that we're about to celebrate in a few minutes? A new covenant. And Jesus said, there's a new covenant in my body and my blood. And, all, and that covenant would have build, built on all the previous covenants throughout the Old Testament. It built on Jeremiah's covenant with God and David's covenant with God and Abraham's covenant with God and Moses' covenant with God. I know I went out of order. But God goes all the way back to the beginning of God's story. It's all connected. This whole story is connected in God's story of redemption. And you and I are included in that story. What role will you play in God's story? So when you are full of anxiety, you can run to God for peace. You can run to God for peace and look back and see how time and time again he has shown his mercy. He has shown how he's in control and that he's actually good. He has shown us those things. And that's why we can trust him and hope in him. Charles Spurgeon said, he who has been with us in six troubles will not forsake us in the seventh. Through God's mercy, the life and death of, and resurrection of Jesus has secured peace for us so that, so that, not so we just sit around, he secured peace for us so that we can have peace to trust and hope in God, but also so that we can serve other people. 
so that we can serve other people in their interests. What if we were a church known for that and that was our reputation in the community? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your mercy, how you have shown it to us again and again and again, and how you have included us in your story, your great overarching story of redemption, of never-ending love. We praise you and thank you that when we are full of anxiety, we can run to you and you can give us peace. We thank you that you have given us Holy Spirit who is working in us always, always at work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.